Thanks for being here this morning. If you are here for the first time or you're visiting for the first of a few times and haven't yet filled out this card, please do that and give us a chance to at least have a record of your visit and maybe a way to connect you some, to some more information. We won't inundate you with weird and irrelevant stuff. I promise you we don't have a lot of uh, emails that go out, but we would like to at least send you an email that gives you access to our life groups and when they meet and things like that. Um, you, you can also fill out the back where there's a prayer request place uh, where you can indicate some things we can be praying for you. Um, and I promise you and commit to you that we will do that. So um, take a look at that. It's in your seat back if you haven't done that yet. Let's begin with prayer and we're going to climb into our message. God, we are thankful for our time together this morning. We look forward to what you have in store for us. We believe that you are speaking to us this morning through frail, feeble, um, a frail and feeble messenger, but a um, the work of an unbelievable and unbelievably involved Holy Spirit and an infallible word that we have all these resources in front of us this morning, we give you the glory, and we, are look, we look forward to what you have in store for us. A few things that we want to lift up this morning. First of all, we want to pray for our brother Gary Carroll, uh, understanding that last night took a, a turn for the, for the worse as he's recovering from heart surgery. Lord, we entrust his heart, his body, his family, all involved to you. We pray that you would watch over him right now as he recovers from a very, very involved heart surgery. We're thankful that he has good medical care. We're thank, thankful that he's surrounded by family that love him. Uh, but more than anything, we're thankful that we have a God that we can entrust him to, who cares, who knows, who's involved. Um, we're burdened for him and his family right now. Lord, also this morning, we want to lift up another church in our community. I want to pray for Greenville Bible Church and Pastor Jim Corbett. Uh, not knowing Jim, but knowing that he's been in this community serving for some time. Lord, I want to pray for his endurance. Uh, having had 11 years in this context and 11 years in, this, in, this, in, a, in a similar work as a pastor of a church, just have some sense of some of the challenges that he may face from day to day. Uh, some of the strain on his marriage, some of the strain on his life, his health even. Um, his sleep patterns, um, the rigors of this work. Lord, I lift this man up to you and pray that you would watch over him, his marriage, your ministry through him. And Lord, that, that Greenville Bible Church would flourish, that you would use uh, the people there, the worshipers there as a city on a hill in Greenville, as a salty, bright, aromatic people that wherever they go, that they take good news with them. They, they take the, um, the great story of a healthy, vibrant people that you have built and created. Lord, we pray for these things for this church. We pray these, these things for this man and his family. I'm thankful to have the opportunity to lift them up this morning. God, I pray for these next few minutes. I pray that I would just be out of the way and just be a, a messenger of a the message that you have for this people this morning. We are so thankful that we have this book, Hebrews, and this sermon called Hebrews that is such a galvanizing work in the church. We need it and pray that we would hear it this morning. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We've been in Hebrews for the last couple of years, and we are nearing the end of it. And I anticipate that we will finish Hebrews by May, and uh, we're right on track to do that. This morning, we're tackling a, a substantial section in chapter 12, verses 18 through the end of the chapter. And although that may sound daunting, it really is a pretty linear um, development there that I think is going to come cleaner than it may look as you're looking at the Scripture. So I want to give you a plan for the morning, um, kind of a layout of what we're going to do, so you kind of have a map of our route. Sometimes that's more helpful if you're taking notes, or if you're listening and you get distracted, you can come back to the map and figure out where we are. 
There are two parts to the sermon this morning. The first part is going to deal with a very, very important contrast between two mountains. Okay, that's what I said, two mountains. And that begins in verse 18 and goes through verses 24. That's part one of the message. And part two of the message flows from the contrast. Part two of the message is going to deal with three really important implications of this important contrast in part one. Okay, and the second part of the message will deal with verses 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 29. Three implications from that passage. Let me give you a little bit of context before we climb into part one. This is a sermon, the book of Hebrews. It's taken us three years to get through it now or something like that. But it is one sermon that was written by a pastor to his church. He wasn't with them for some reason, but he's written this message to a church who is considering a Jewish Christian church that's considering bailing on Christianity and going back to Judaism. There are some clues and some things that give us some sense that they are in Rome. We don't know that absolutely for sure without beyond the shadow of a doubt. We know they're in the Roman Empire, but there are some signs that they're in Rome, which would have been a very difficult place to be a Christian in the first century A.D. So this pastor is writing this message to this church that either is in part or in whole, considering going back to something that's easy. Falling back from something that's hard to something that's easy. Now, as over the years, as we've climbed through Hebrews, I've asked this question over and over again. Why is this letter in the book, if we were, or this, why is this sermon in our Bibles, and why is it appropriate for the church as a whole? If we're not Messianic Jews, and if none of you are in the, the place where you may end up leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism, what does it have to do with us? And the answer over and over Again, for me, and I think for us, has been the realization that we can too can fall back to something that's easy that may not be Judaism. It may just be respectably easy. See, falling back to Judaism would have been respectable for them. After all, their family members were all Jews. Those family members that likely disowned them when they became Jewish Christians. They could fall back to the loving embrace of the rest of their family that had been Jews for who knows how many generations. It had been a respectable fallback. And thinking about some of the things that we could fall back to that are respectable, we could fall back to a respectable, although it's becoming more and more vile in my mind, a churchless Christianity, which is our context, people. A churchless Christianity where people that we work with, people that we live with, that are live by, maybe even live with, people that we share our neighborhoods with, in large part in Greenville, say that they have a relationship or have had some experience with God, feel like they're secure in a relationship with God, but yet they have nothing to do with God's people unless someone's sick, unless their marriage is on the rocks, unless some crisis has brought them to the church. And then in many cases when the crisis is over, they're gone. Back to the house on Sundays. It's kind of respectable, you know. At least they say, well, I love, still love Jesus. Another version might be a Christless Christianity. We're from pulpits across our country, maybe across our world. And I'm not saying all. I'm not speaking, caricaturing the church in general. But you, don't, you turn on the TV and look at some of the messages from some of the televangelists and TV preachers and realize there is such thing as Christless Christianity that really God is just life coach. The Savior's doing nothing more than to improve your life and make life better for you. And really, once you've made that decision with him, then he's old news. And then we talk about how you can get rich, how you can get healthy, and how life can be great for you with the wind to your back, fair winds, and following seas. It's Christless Christianity. It's somewhat respectable, though, because we mention Jesus every now and again. Yeah, I don't want to caricature the church. I don't want to caricature the North American church. But I, time and time again, as I've asked the question about this book, I thought this book is a galvanizing sermon that the church, the contemporary church, needs. And you know what's funny, too? It's not just the contemporary church, because this thing was written 2,000 years ago. 
There's nothing new under the sun. This church are second generation believers. There's a clue in the passage here, or in, in, in the book, over in chapter 2, that this letter, this sermon, was written to people whose parents heard Jesus preach or had seen the risen Lord at some point. So this is a second-generation church that's already considering bailing on Christ. So there's nothing new under the sun. We're not in some especially vile period in the story of the Christian church. This letter was just as important then as it is now. We need it. It's a galvanizing message. So let's climb into the contrast. All that for intro. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. I want to read through verse 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, there's no mention what in the world he's talking about here. But if you've read your Bible, if you're a student of the entire storyline, you might be thinking an event, thinking about an event where these details sort of sound familiar. Whether you're thinking there or not, I want us to read there. So turn over to Exodus chapter 19. This is the first of the two mountains we're going to consider in the first part of the sermon. This is Mount Sinai. Now, as you're turning there, I'll remind you and give you a little context. The beginning of this passage starts with the word for, which ties us back to the argument that's developed over the course of chapter 12. And what's developed over the course of chapter 12 is an appeal from the Hebrews preacher to run the race well and run it with endurance. Don't quit running the race of faith. So this contrast fits into, it may seem like at first blush, as you're looking at this thinking, ah, this sounds a little bit academic. It's not academic. It applies wonderfully to our race running. Okay, remember the context of where we are. He's been talking about running the race. He's also been talking about some see to it, some things that we should be seeing to as we're running the race. And this is all fit into that, this contrast. Now, first of all, you've not come to Mount Sinai with all its terror. Let's look at some of the a few excerpts from chapter 19 and 20. Just a few short excerpts, beginning in chapter 19, verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. In the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, all around this mountain, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. They will become so holified that you have to put them to death. And you can't even do that with your own hands. You have to throw a bunch of rocks at them, stone them, or shoot them with, with an arrow. You've got to keep your distance from this holy mountain. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. That's with an arrow. There are no guns in that day. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now, take in some of the details there. I just have in kind of my little notes there, sort of the central message of that, that, that little excerpt there is no touchy. No touchy this mountain or you will die. This is a seriously holy event, and it is full of terror. Listen to what unfolds beginning in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. Now, we get like crazy storms in north Texas, so we're familiar with thunder and lightning, so that doesn't sound so bad, although some of those nights you're like looking for a place to hide with our pets under the bed. You know, the pets know when to be scared. A thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Now, I don't know who's blowing the trumpet. It's angelic trumpet blowing. It's loud enough where the whole camp can hear it. Now, that's a little bit alarming. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Okay, this is a frightening moment. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. 
Remember, no touchy. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. So the people are trembling and the mountain is trembling. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. We've got smoke, we've got trembling people, we've got trembling mountain, we've got a trumpet that's getting louder and louder and louder, we've got fire, we've got all the ingredients for a truly terrifying event. And sure enough, look over in chapter 20, verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. That's in case we missed that in chapter 19. And they stood far off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The little note that I have on the side of my note, or the little thing that I made there on the side of that excerpt is, this is a time when the nation of Israel had to change their drawers. Christy gets mad at me every time I say that. I used to say change your depends, but I've, I've cleaned that up a little bit to say change your drawers. So I, I, even though I threw out change it depends anyway, this was a terrifying event, all lightheartedness aside. These people are saying, I am so afraid that in fact, I'm asking Moses, you speak to us, please, because this whole thing is so terrifying for us, we can hardly stand it. Now, this passage, this, this event is what's being referenced here in Hebrews. This Hebrews preacher, 1,500 years after this event, is taking these events to the life of the church and saying, you have not come to this mountain. You have not come to a mountain that may be touched. Now, it might be touched with great cost because you're going to get stoned or shot. But it was touchable, unlike the next mountain we're about to consider. It was touchable, and there was blazing fire. There was darkness, gloom, and tempest. There's a trumpet sound that gets louder and louder. There's a voice that made folks beg for a human mediator. And it's in a place and occasion so terrifying that it left folks altogether terrified, trembling with fear along with a mountain that trembled. And this Hebrews preacher says, that's not the mountain you've come to. And he continues on. If you're not back over there in Hebrews 12, go back there. We're going to move on to this next mountain. He continues on in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have not come to Sinai, but in Christ, if you want to build in some context there, you have come to Mount Zion the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Wow, that's a mouthful. Now, let me tell you this, first of all, in in our story up to this point, in the Old Testament, Zion was the place where God dwelled. It was considered a place where God not dwelled altogether, but where he visited. The temple was there. We're talking about Jerusalem. There are some passages in all of our Bible, really, but here's a couple. It first shows up in 2 Samuel, this calling Jerusalem, Mount Zion. But here's a couple of Psalms that give us some sense of what's going on there. Psalm 2.6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He's talking about a real physical Mount Zion there. Jerusalem is what he's talking about. Psalm 9.11 says, sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. He's speaking of the temple mount there and the temple 
right there in Jerusalem. Now, the Hebrews preacher is not talking physical. He's talking about the substance of which that was just shadow. A few couple thousand years, well, it would be a thousand years before this letter, a thousand years of shadow. Here he's speaking of the substance that's the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly city of God. And what he's saying here, what he's developed here is in Christ, the Hebrews church stands before something so much greater than the trembling, quaking, terrifying Sinai that it's almost indescribable, yet he gives it an attempt. Some of those details that he brings out, first of all, he calls it a heavenly Jerusalem. He's not talking about physical Jerusalem here. These guys have apparently a real affection for physical Jerusalem if they're considering going back to Judaism. And he's taking them instead to a heavenly Jerusalem. And then in Christ, he says, we have come to the city of God. At Mount Sinai, God just came down. God condescended to come down to Mount Sinai for a visit. But in the heavenly Zion, on the other hand, this is his dwelling place. So in Christ, in effect, we go up to his dwelling place, not stand trembling at the base of Sinai. In Christ, we come to a host of angels and believers. The word there is innumerable. It means countless thousands. But really what it means for us is it means that it doesn't have a number. There are too many angels there to number in this heavenly Jerusalem. In Christ, we've come to a great host of witnesses. Just a few weeks ago, we considered the passage that talks about this tremendous host of witnesses that surrounds us while we're running the race. The amphitheater is full of the saints. This is what he's talking about here. In Christ, we've come to that amphitheater with a great host of witnesses. The stands are filled with the assembly of the saints and the spirits of those made perfect. And in Christ, we've come to God himself, the judge of all that is God of all. Because of Christ's work as high priest and sacrifice, we have come also to Christ himself, the mediator of a new covenant. And because of Christ's work as high priest and sacrifice, we've come to blood with a message that was greater than the message of Abel's blood. That's where we're going to have our supper this morning. We'll come back to that thought at the end of the morning. But what I want you to see so far in these two mountains is a very important contrast. The Hebrews preacher throughout this book uses what are called lesser to greater arguments. This is a lesser to greater argument. We haven't come to little old scary Sinai. We have come in Christ to something so much greater, so much bigger. It is unbelievable, indescribable very important contrast. And there are three wonderful implications that then flow from that contrast. Beginning in verse 25, see to it. Here's the first of the three. This is part two of the message. Three implications of this important contrast. Here's the first one in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And here's the second implication. We'll talk about each of these implications briefly. Here's the second one in verse 26. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Yet this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have not been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And here's the third implication. And you may not see these implications just yet as I'm reading it. That's okay. We're going to draw them out. Here's the third implication. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, here's the first implication of this amazing 
wonderfully important contrast between Sinai and the heavenly Zion. First, see to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Right there in verse 25. See that here in this passage could be translated like our see to it's earlier. See to it here is a present active imperative. This is a command. It is like God giving a commandment to the Hebrews church through the Hebrews preacher. And it's also plural. We together are commanded to see to it that we don't refuse him who is speaking. This is an ongoing command for the Hebrews church of active listening. Man, just let that hit you for a moment. Active listening as a command from God. Active, engaged, attentive listening to him who is speaking. I had various thoughts here. You know, in fact, somebody in our, one of of my, one of our uh, church family here has asked me from week to week for notes. And if any of you ever need that, I'll provide that for you. And, if, and they have my notes this morning complete with scribbles, so they're probably trying to make sense of this as I am. This whole section here is just like, because I'm overwhelmed with a number of thoughts, just with this phrase, see to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking in light of this contrast between Sinai and heavenly Zion. I'm overwhelmed with thoughts and questions and wondering, are we, do we really Listen, do we really listen to God, to him who is speaking? Like we're hearing from God week by week in the teaching and preaching of the word. Or when you sit and read your Bibles together as a family or as individuals, do you really consider that you are hearing from Him who is speaking. Does it strike you that that is present tense speaking? Do you consider when we gather on Sunday mornings that you're hearing about something God said a long time ago and something that God did a long time ago? Or when you show up, are you actually coming here saying, I need to hear from God today and God is going to speak to me through this old knucklehead, Ben McGraw. In fact, I don't even care about Ben McGraw. Get his old ugly self out of the way. I want to hear from God. Do we as a church and do we as contemporary church listen to him who is speaking ongoing present tense? Like he has a message for you today. Like he has a message that if you're not here and you don't hear it, that you're not going to hear from God. Like a message that's so important that it's like your family is engaging your creator together as you sit hearing the exposition of his word. It's not the first time the Hebrews preacher has introduced us to the thought of this him who is speaking. In chapter 4, here's what he said about the word. The word of God is living, and active. The Word of God is living and active, and it's doing that because He is speaking. Though our Bible is complete and finished and we don't need to add anything to it, He continues to speak through the teaching and preaching and study and work of the Holy Spirit through all of those things of his word. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, present tense, to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning, present tense, the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. It's not the first little encounter we've had with this idea of him who is Speaking, And I have to ask the question, as a pastor of a local church, in our context, are we really listening actively? Do we race to hear? Do we, on occasion, look for excuses not to? If little Johnny has a fever, does everyone say, well, little Johnny has a fever. I guess we need to stay home today. Or does the shepherd of that family say, well, honey... I'll stay home with little Johnny and you go here. Or does the shepherd of that family say, Honey, if you would, 
can you stay home with little Johnny? Because I need to go hear from God for our family. Because him who is speaking is speaking. Are we really listening? Do we have the thought, too, that, you know, I'm going to be gone for a few weeks, so if I don't hear it, then I'm not going to be accountable for it, right? <laughs> uh, right? That's like a, a policeman pulling you over and saying, hey, did you know it's against the law to do this? Left lane lingerers. Did you know it's against the law to hang out in the left lane forevermore like that? And I won't name anybody's name, <laughs> although I'm thinking of it, and most of y'all are, too. Oh, well, officer, I did not know that. Well, uh, oh, you didn't know? Oh, okay, it's cool. And we know things don't work that way. Do you have the thought, hey, I'm out of town for a few weeks. I need to hear what God said to our people. Him who is speaking said something. Do you have a hearty appetite for the exposition of the word and value it so much so that you need it to live Do you value it to the point where it actually becomes part of the conversation at home? I'm asking these questions of myself, too, in the McGraw household. Because there are some weeks where I preach it, and we'll go a week. We don't talk about it. Anything more than Christy affirming when I got home. Hey, you did a good job, babe. Thank you. Good job. That was awesome. And I'm like, thank you. And then next Sunday, I preach. What a shame. God spoke that we had an opportunity for the McGraws to dialogue on what did God say to us? Was he just speaking to the Hebrews church 2,000 years ago? Or was he actually speaking to us? Apparently, he's still speaking. Him who is speaking for the word of God is active and living. And I have to ask the question, is the contemporary church really listening? Or might we be satisfied with some tidbits too to just get us through the week? How do we approach if we come weekly? Are we just looking for some tidbits from our life coach? I mean, really think about it. Some of y'all are visiting with us for the first time or first of a few times. It's a hard question that our church has considered before. And maybe you need to consider, you're here by divine appointment to consider, what am I looking for in a church? A pep talk? What am I looking for in a preacher? A cheerleader? (laughs) Or am I looking for the exposition of the word from a God who is speaking? Man, think about it. Might we be satisfied with a few tidbits? Might we at times let the preaching of the word just become parallel to our lives? I cannot tell you how often I'm talking with someone over the course of the week and they're going through some trial, they're trying to process something and they're wrestling with some issue in their life. And I'm kind of like, hey, is Alan Font going to come out here any minute and say, you're on candy camera? You know, I don't remember how the song went. Because I'm thinking, did, did you hear what God said Sunday? See, God spoke right to this issue that you're wrestling with right now. You were equipped to walk in this on Sunday. See, here's the amazing thing about one setting in a preaching or teaching or corporate environment where we're gathering to hear from God is God surgically, through the work of the Holy Spirit, speaks with the same message to each of you individually and as families in ways that that address your very issues that either deal with something you're going through or they're equipping you for something that you're about to go through. Then he can orchestrate something like that is the miracle of his word and the miracle of the work of the Holy Spirit. It happens more times than not where people will say, hey, here's what God said to me Sunday. Here's what he showed me Sunday. I'm like, really? Wow, that was surgical. That was a surgical message for you that this person over here didn't get because they got a different insight that the Lord showed them and equipped them for a different issue. Do you at times view the preaching of the word as you should, as an orchestrated message by God via the Holy Spirit through a feeble messenger to direct you and guide you and specifically and surgically as families and together corporately as a church family because it's not all just about you And it's not all just about your family either. It's about God's message for the local body and the local church. Are we really listening? 
I jotted down another passage that I thought was interesting. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This is a familiar passage to you if you've read or if you've been through a study on the importance of the Word. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's really a, a, a equipping for really anything is what he says next. That the, the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. That's pretty cool about God's Word, isn't it? You're like, man, I knew that. Mm, I'm treasuring my Bible. That's really good. Listen what the next verse is. So then, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judged the living of the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach that word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, rebuke exhort with complete patience and teaching. I'm seeing passages like that. I'm thinking to myself, do I hear from God on Sunday or is it just a parallel conversation talky talk? Do you? I'm going to confess to you most of my Christian journey, it's just been sort of a parallel conversation. And I kind of pop in from Sunday, every Sunday, like, hey, what's, what's the pastor going to be talking about this week? Oh, that's nifty. And then I go on and do life. And it doesn't, and, and ne'er do that, and when I say parallel, because parallel lines don't intersect. Remember your math, your geometry class, whoosh, they just run over forever. And it's the sermon, week by week, just kind of whoosh, and then here's your life, whoosh, on a running on a totally different track. Then you're missing him who is, him who is speaking. And I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about God that's speaking through frail preachers and frail teachers week by week who are exposing this living and active word spoken by him who is speaking. Man, I'm convinced more and more as we go, the letter to the Hebrews church is just what the contemporary church needs. It's what every church has needed for the last 2,000 years. But this lesser to greater contrast, if heard, should galvanize the church to the gravity of him who is speaking because it's so easy to treat his speaking with contempt by being inattentive. It's so easy to treat him who is speaking with contempt by living like it's just optional or letting it continue to just be parallel like Charlie Brown's teacher. I go endure that joker once a week, whoever that joker might be for the week, and wah, 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 what we having for lunch. I've sat where you sat. I know what it's like to hear sermons week by week. I know the stuff that I've thought about. I grew up with those little velvet, not big, little big velvet pews where you could write your name in the velvet and then erase. <laughs> Cursive. <laughs> I'm talking about enduring some sermons that just were, they weren't even parallel for me. They were just non-existent. Man, are you hearing him who is speaking? This huge and important contrast between Sinai and the heavenly Zion sheds light on the sad. Here's, here's, here's this mess of, here's where this mess of thought is coming together. This huge and important contrast between Sinai and the heavenly Zion sheds light on the sad misunderstanding that the new covenant is somehow more tolerant of contempt on the part of the worshiper. It's a sad misunderstanding of the new covenant. There's unspoken, maybe even unrealized, thought that the bar has somehow been lowered by grace. That God's approach to contempt and indifference and inattentiveness, which those are synonymous is now met with just, oh, that's okay. We're in the new covenant. It's fine. Now, if you were in the old covenant, woo, I'd be throwing down some lightning on you or something, fire. But you're in the new covenant, so it's fine. And this is what the Hebrews preacher is saying. Man, we've missed it if that's what you're thinking. We've missed it if that's what we're thinking. The sad irony is how that would if some people were to characterize the spirit of worship from many new covenant churches, which I use those, there, is, there shouldn't be anything but new covenant churches. You could describe us as they 
ate and they drank and they rose up to play. That sound familiar? They ate and they drank and they rose up to play because they're in that new covenant, which is like easy. I want you to look at what's being said here. If the old covenant worshiper didn't escape when he or she was warned under the old covenant, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them, past tense, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns, present tense, from heaven. From warned old covenant to warns new covenant. What a sad misrepresentation of a new covenant that's missing out on warns, present tense. Him who is speaking, him who warns, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Man, do you think that God took a chill pill between Malachi and Matthew? I mean, really, let's be honest. Ah. (laughs) Things got easy between Malachi and Matthew. Do you realize that the old covenant sanctions for the rebellious and unrepentant, as terrifying as they were, paled compared to those under the new? That's what's being said here. Scores of people who testify that they know the Lord, yet have no use for him who is speaking. That is our context, Crosspoint Fellowship, here in Greenville, Texas, right now, rampant inattentiveness. We live with people who are subject to this. We could be those people at times. But do you realize that we, through Christ, have come to something greater? Man, let that hit you for a moment. And it's not greater because it's somehow more lenient. We've come to something greater that is greater because it's that much finer. So much so that the old covenant is now shadow. And this is substance we're walking in. It should get every bit of us. It should get every bit of us. The second thing, the second and third are briefer. I want to spend a little more time with that mess. Here's the second. The second implication of this important contrast between Sinai and the heavenly Zion is there's a shaking coming. A significant shaking is coming. With the southern version, shaking. There's a shaking coming. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, there was quite an earthquake at the old covenant ceremony, so much so that they're all saying, hey, (laughs) um, Moses, can you talk to us? Can we stand back from this trembling mountain as we're trembling? It must have been terrifying. It scared them to death because it became legend. It fills our psalms. Here's a few of them. Psalms 68, 7, and 8. Oh God, when you went out before your people, you marched through the wilderness. The earth quaked. The heavens, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. The Jews had such a high view, really, I would say almost a terrifying view, a healthy, terrifying view of God, that they would not even say his name, Yahweh. They just call it the name And here in the new covenant, man, we can just like, ah. Psalm 77, 18. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Psalm 114. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. Man, under this old covenant, it must have been terrifying. But he's saying there's a better shaking, a more significant shaking that's coming. He references a passage in Haggai right here. Haggai 2, 6 through 9 says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land yet once more. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. Now in Haggai, this prophet Haggai is speaking about the restoration of God's people to Jerusalem to the physical earthly Zion. He's talking about the restoration of the temple, the dwelling place for God. But the Hebrews preacher references this passage in Haggai because this is the ultimate fulfillment of it. Talking about the filling of the heavenly Jerusalem. 
the filling of the heavenly Zion. And then the, the filling of the church and the gathering of the church from the shaking of the nations. As his people were shaken out in the nations. The new covenant shaking and quaking are going to make the old covenant one look like the tremor in Dallas a few weeks ago. At least some of y'all didn't even know there's a tremor in Dallas a few weeks ago. You're like, what are you talking about? I know some folks that work in Dallas, and they were like, man, I, I felt a little something. Huh, we had a tremor. Did you know we had a tremor in Dallas? Everybody's looking at me like that. What do you even know what you about? We had one a few weeks ago. It was like almost unmentionable. That's the old covenant, Sinai. <laughs> what tremor compared to what's coming? Compared to what's coming, that's a tremor. This shaking will be so profound, it will shake the nations, and it will shake the earth into oblivion. I want you to hear what's being said there. He says, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And then in verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, only those who are holding on to an unshakable kingdom will survive the coming shaking because everything else that's been made is just going to be shaken into oblivion. And those who are his and in his kingdom are going to shake out like a kid's jeans, a 10-year-old's jeans that mom grabs them by the ends of the, shakes them out, all the treasures he's captured over the course of the day before she throws them in the washer. He's going to shake the nations like a, like a gold dude is panning for gold where he's shaking out all the dirt, where he's pulling out these nuggets. That's what he's saying he's going to do. He's going to shake the nations. And the thing that he's calling the silver and the gold are God's people that he's gather up, gathering up over the years from the nations. We're going to be winnowed like wheat from the chaff. That's what's promised right here. And I'm thinking about this, man, this shaking. That if I'm paying attention, if you're paying attention, you should realize that every day you're holding on to something that is shakable to teach you to hold on to the very thing that will not be shaken. I'm thinking about guys like disciples that maybe spent their whole lives fishing who go follow Jesus. And they just happen to be in a boat as Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee and there comes a tempest that's so bad that guys that grew up as fishermen are sitting there thinking, we're going to die. This thing that they may have held to their whole lives, this thing that they may have known since day one, boats, water, paddles, survival, probably not even something they even think about. They're, thinking, they're shaking so bad that I'm about to die is a little lesson that all they can really hold on to is their Savior who's in the boat. And I'm, tell, I'm telling you, every single one of us experiences things from day to day and week to week where God lets something that you are holding on to be shaken. It might be your marriage. You might be in a season or you might be coming to a season where things have just been like, man, they've been so great. You're holding on to that thing. Like, my marriage is so awesome. I just love it. And then you turn around tomorrow and go, what happened? Something, we got shaken up. Something Something happened there, and I'm realizing my marriage is shakable as a tutor that I can't place my joy in that marriage. I can't derive my joy from that marriage. I can only derive my joy and security from something that's truly unshakable, which is his kingdom. It might be your job. Anybody ever been canned? Anybody ever been in an untenable work environment? We're like, man, I'm getting shaken up here, and I cannot survive this context. And that's a little tutor for you that the only thing that you can truly hold on to is his kingdom. Friendships go through periods where they're shaken to teach us that anything and everything is shakable. Parenting. Kids, some of you come from homes where your parents divorced. Your life got shaken up, didn't it? And that is a sad, heartbreaking tutor to, make, to teach you to make a beeline to the only thing that's truly unshakable, which is his kingdom. Man, that's the thing to hold on to. Gary and Shelly Carroll are dealing with the realities of our health is not even something that we can hold on to as secure because it too is shakable. The only thing that's not shakable 
is his kingdom. God, his kingdom, his people, and him who is speaking. Now, those are static. Those are immovable. And those are worth holding on to. Now, the third thing, the third application is therefore, in light of this massive contrast between Sinai and a heavenly Zion, let us offer acceptable worship. Let's offer acceptable worship. You might hear that and say, ah, that sounds that makes sense. But you have to first deal with the reality that if he's saying there's such thing as if he's saying this should result in acceptable worship, he's implying that there's such thing as unacceptable worship. Unacceptable worship. And our Bibles are full of examples, especially the minor prophets. The minor prophets go into great, sad detail about the unacceptable worship of Israel. But we don't have to get bogged down in the wrong way to worship. We can go right here because he gives us some beautiful ways to respond to this wonderful mountain that we are coming to because of Christ's work, this heavenly Zion. And right here, we can glean them right here from this passage, beginning in verse 8 or 28. We can be grateful. Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the, one, that's the first element of truly acceptable worship that is grateful for something that's static to hold on to when everything else is shaken. And you're reminded how shakable. And the second thing, they're together. Acceptable worship, we can glean right from this passage in verse 28. It says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I'm asking that question with reverence and awe. And I cannot tell you how many times I've left a Sunday morning feeling like, man, I wish we'd have had something in my notes there. I'm coming up to a Sunday. I wish I had something in my notes here. It was kind of lighthearted, kind of funny, you know, so people would want to come back. I'm just being honest and vulnerable. So people want, because that's what we're all after, right? It's just some fun. We just want a preacher who's kind of funny. Because then he's easier to listen to. And I can go listen to him again next week. And I'm here and seeing a passage like this. Go say, wait, wait a minute. Acceptable worship that's appropriately responding to what Christ has done. And this unbelievable Mount Zion that we have come to. This heavenly Zion is awe-driven and reverent. Funny shmoney. Nifty whatever. I don't care how nifty or how warm I come across on a Sunday morning, or how funny I come across on a Sunday morning, more than anything, I want to come across as someone who is fueled by and fostering through the exposition of the word awe and reverence. Man, I like the sound of that. I'm asking the question, how's my worship characterized? How's your worship characterized? Is it sober and serious? Are you preparing to hear from God on Saturday nights? How about that? That's a hard question I need to ask myself as I'm thinking about my family environment on a Saturday night. Am I preparing my family to hear a message from God on Saturday nights? Is it jokey and funny? Is it full of nifty tidbits? Or is it profound, life-altering truths? no matter how cumbersome they are to expose? Are they profound, life-altering truths? I'm thinking about from my perspective, and my, as a father and as a shepherd and a husband also. Think about this when you're singing to God. Are you singing as if you're singing to the living creator? Or are you just kind of going through the motions? How should we be coming to God week by week? How should we be preparing to come to God week by week? With reverence and awe. That's acceptable worship. Do you view God as the old man upstairs? I've heard that more times in Greenville than I care to count. Not from Crosspoint folks, thankfully. The old man upstairs. Do you have an overdeveloped view of Abba Daddy? Is he Abba Father? Absolutely. But that's not all he is. He is living God. He is judge of all. 
and he is a consuming fire. And our worship should reflect that. And the last little picture of acceptable worship is that it's plural. I wonder how many of you, and I asked myself this question too because it wasn't wasn't until later in the week that I realized how plural this whole conversation is. How many of you, if you're hearing this passage read or if you read it on your own or thinking about yourself and maybe thinking about a little beyond that maybe to your family, listen to the plurals in this passage. First of all, the see to it's are plural and the church is doing these things. But the other plurals are right there in verse 28. Let us be grateful. Us being the church. Let us be grateful. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. There's the thought there that you can't offer to God acceptable worship by yourself. It's a plural verb. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. Let us be grateful for our God is a consuming fire. Am I saying that when you're by yourself opening your Bible, reading and praying in the morning that you're not somehow worshiping? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying worship at its best is with an us. And again, we're living in a context that says, that's optional. I don't need that. And this may be the one installment that you hear this morning that connects you to a church family where you don't come and go and join the masses in our community of what we would call respectable, churchless Christianity. I don't think it's Christianity at all. Because these things, acceptable worship, is only done plurally. Plurally with a church family. I don't know of a better argument than this development over these few chapters in Hebrews for church membership. I'm not talking to us. I'm not trying to promote Crosspoint as the place to join for our visitors. But I'm saying find some place to land and connect to a bunch of smelly, human, unpredictable, disappointing people. That's called the church. Go do some let using with those people. Let us be grateful. Let us together, the whole mess of us, whole frail, feeble bunch of us, offer acceptable worship. It's a wonderful argument for church membership. In light of the contrast between Sinai and the heavenly Zion, see to it that you don't refuse him who's speaking. Know there's a shaking that's coming and hold on to the unshakable kingdom and offer fitting, acceptable worship. It's the only appropriate response. Let me pray and we'll have our supper. God, I pray that we would be this people I pray for our families that are sitting in this room this right now, for our shepherds. I pray that we are hearing this message and that we are convicted about our lightheartedness, maybe, about worship. I pray that our goal as shepherds, as uh, elders, as deacons, as teachers, whatever role that we may have, as moms that are raising children or whoever we might be, Lord, I pray that you would guard us from wanting to be funny wanting to be nifty, wanting to be endearing for all the wrong reasons. But I pray that more than anything that we are fueled by awe and reverence. I pray that our response is a fitting and acceptable worship. I'm thankful for this mighty mountain that we've come to because of Christ's work. I'm thankful that there are too many angels to number. I'm thankful there's not a number that exists for the number of angels in festal gathering. I'm thankful that we can come to you, the judge of all, the God of all. What wonderful truths, wonderful realities, Lord. I pray that today that we are listening to him who is speaking. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I told you this morning we were going to land on Abel's blood. This passage is is interesting in dealing with Abel's blood. There's not a whole lot of development about Abel's blood in our Bibles apart from Genesis chapter 4. What's been developed in this story so far has had a whole lot more to do about comparing Moses and Jesus 
Old Covenant and New Covenant, law and gospel. So what does, what does Aaron, excuse me, Abel's blood have to do with this whole storyline? I'm going to read the excerpt from Genesis chapter 4, the account of Abel and what happened to his blood. I want you to listen to this if you would. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry and his face fell. Apparently, it wasn't acceptable worship. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know, and am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you, Cain, are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Abel's reference here seems like a departure. It's just unusual. Abel's blood and Abel's story. There are some similarities between Abel's story and Christ's story, though. You may have never really thought about these contrasts. Abel's death was violent. And he, as far as the storyline goes, was innocent. We don't believe that he's infallible and perfect like Christ because he's the only one that's ever been. But at least the story goes, we don't see any sinfulness on his part. All we see is some pretty fine worship, acceptable worship. As far as we know, he was mostly innocent. And he died a violent death. And his blood speaks a message. And the message of his blood is to be avenged. The message of his blood is vengeance. And here's the sad reality about Abel's death. Though the shedding of Abel's blood resulted, here's here's the outcome of the shedding of Abel's blood. It resulted in nothing more than a grave filled with Abel and a curse on Cain. And in some ways, the best blood that humanity had to offer couldn't achieve anything more than an occupied grave and a curse on man. Think about that for a minute. Abel's blood, though fine, wasn't able to effect reconciliation between Cain and his creator. And the best human blood that was ever shed could not affect reconciliation between us Cain's And our creator, and yes, that's right, I called us Cain's. We have more in common with Cain than you realize. But now Christ's blood is altogether different. What does his blood have over Abel's blood? Well, his blood too was fully human. Verse 24 refers to him as Jesus, which is not used often in Hebrews. Emphasizing this was human blood. Fully human. The shedding of his blood resulted in a temporarily occupied grave. And the shedding of his blood resulted in a blessing, not just a curse like Abel's blood. And Christ's blood accomplished what Abel's blood couldn't. And his blood speaks a message, a message of grace, a message of forgiveness, rather than a message of vengeance like Abel's. 
His blood speaks the message of salvation for all who draw near to God through Christ. That's a good message from good blood. It was a terrifying voice at Sinai. And that terrifying voice at Sinai has been replaced now with Jesus' blood speaking. A message of hope, a message of forgiveness, a message of grace, and a message of salvation. So hold fast to this king, this priest, this blood. Hold fast to his unshakable kingdom and hold fast with everything that you got listening to him who speaks. Let's distribute the elements. My nephew, J.D. is his name, McGraw, uh, is in college now. When he was a little boy, my brother tells a story about he and J.D. were driving somewhere, and they had a, he had a kind of a regular cab pickup truck. So there's just the two of them in this small space. It wasn't even king cab, you know, so he's sitting up front. I guess before that was a big deal. And he was, I don't know, I don't know how, I remember how, how old he said he was, five or six probably. And he was having a father-son talk with him. And it wasn't like birds of bees talk or anything like that. It was just a very important, you wouldn't want to do that driving, just so you know. That's probably not a good place to be driving around, talking about birds of bees. He's just having a really important talk with his son, driving around in the car, and was sharing with him some you know, really deep insight from father to son. And his son, J.D., was quiet for a while. And he's, you know, Mark is thinking, my brother Mark is thinking, well, he's, he's, you know, thinking on this, processing this a little bit. And then he says, Dad, he said, yes, son. You know, he's thinking, yes, son, young sage, or young, young grasshopper. He says, uh, Dad, he said, did you know my Buzz Lightyear glows in the dark? <laughs> and he, he immortalized himself with that little response after my brother's heartfelt explanation and we've laughed about that for, I don't know, he's 20 now probably, 20 years, 15 years at least. Um, but I wonder how often we do that with him who is speaking. You know, we may terminally do that. I, I hope we don't terminally because terminally is grave. It's not acceptable worship. But even if you find yourself right now, you know what? I haven't been listening. I haven't been attentive to him who is speaking. I haven't been eager to hear this message from God. Um, and maybe it's because how you've been viewing this, or maybe how you view church, or how you view his word, or teaching or preaching, or maybe you're just distracted with life and stuff that has gotten you um, in, a, in a place of being inattentive. I cannot stress to you how important it is to pay attention to him who is speaking. And to not stop listening. It is grave. It is important. May we be, may you be that people. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss us with a benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Y'all have a great week.